everyone, I'm Jenna. And I'm Mark. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Cincinnati Zoo Tales. We're excited to introduce our guest today. Colleen Adams is here from the interpretive department and she specifically works a lot or closely with our tomandua. So we're going to talk a lot about tomandua's today, but we just wanted to say thanks for being here and hear what you have to say about yourself and how you guys started in this business first. Wow, that is a really open-ended It prompt. really is. <laughs> well, talk off, about anything, basically. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do. We'll do. I can talk forever. Um, first off, thanks for having me on the podcast. Really excited to be here. Um, so how I got my start in zookeeping, like most zookeepers, I'll give you the cliche, I've loved animals my whole life, always knew I wanted to do something with animals. Um, however, I didn't really think of zookeeping as like a real profession. I thought of zookeeping as more of like a fairy tale, you know, man in the yellow hat from Curious mm. George. I didn't really think of that being a real thing people did, so I thought veterinary school would be my only option if I wanted to work with animals. Really lucky that on a college visit I learned that there were zoo programs out there, so I went to Malone University and I got a degree in zoo and wildlife biology, and I got a minor in psychology, which was heavily focused on animal psychology. That's fun. Very yes. cool, yeah. And I will say that I personally feel like the psychology minor has come in more handy than my major um, with all of the training we do and behavior observations and things like that. Um, after college, well, during college, I went. I did a handful of internships. Detroit Zoo. Um, I worked at an exotic animal rescue facility for abandoned pets that people should not have. Um, I worked also at um, a wildlife sanctuary for native animals. So did we things. Have with... Really similar background. Do we? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should compare after this. <laughs> um, you know, opossums and snapping turtles and things like that, um, and then. I worked at the Columbus Zoo, the Akron Zoo, and I did um, about six months at a farm rescue that also had a handful of exotic animals. Uh, they had a mob of 30 wallabies very randomly. Um, people think they make good lawn ornaments. They don't, so they would surrender them to this farm, and the mob just kept growing. So I worked there for a while. Huh. And well, then, that helps your experience now, right? Like, yes, it does. <laughs> yes, it does. Then from there, I remember standing outside in the driveway. I got the call that I got the job at the Cincinnati Zoo with our interpretive department, which leads us to now. And when did you start here? I started here in 2015, September okay. of 2015. It's been a while now. Yes. Everything feels, time is just messed up yes. in my head these days. <laughs> like, I don't know how long anything has been. It seems longer or shorter. And um, So were you working with ambassador animals at Columbus and Akron too? Or like, so that's what you've always been doing? Yeah. So I've primarily worked with ambassador animals. I can't believe I left out one of my positions. When I was in school, we had a zoo on campus, the Malone University Serpentarium. Wow. So cool. I was the primary keeper for three years of a subset of animals of the collection. So that was really cool. I got paid experience as a keeper for three years right right next to like the chem lab there awesome. was where the animals were kept. So that was really cool. Between classes I could run in and take care of the animals and clock my time. Um, but those are ambassador animals as well because we would use them for you know job fairs and things like that. And then, yeah, Columbus Zoo, I worked with in their ambassador department doing shows and programs and a lot of um, meet and greets and random encounters and things. Um, Akron Zoo, I was there in their ambassador department for a year in a temp position. Um, they were working on kind of figuring out what their structure was going to be with their ambassador department, whether they were going to stay part of education or part of the animal department. So I was there at a, like an interim period. So 
Typically it's a six month temp position, but I was extended for 12 months just to kind of make that transition easier with only having to have one person in that spot. So, and then here, ambassadors. So you mentioned education. We've said ambassadors and interpretive. Yes. Will you describe the difference? There's a small difference in interpretive animals and ambassador animals at a zoo than what, like say Mark and I work with. Like all of the animals mm -hmm. here at the zoo are ambassadors for wild species, but what does your department do differently? And just explain a little bit about what it is. Yeah, thanks for asking. That's a really important clarification to make. Sometimes we forget. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're just a group of zookeepers talking. Um, so ambassador animals is kind of a fancy way of saying the animals that would be used for presentations, programs, animals that you can get up close and personal with, um, animals that you might get to have a really unique um, experience with where there's no boundaries, no borders. So a lot of times you come to the zoo and you see a lot of our really neat animals like our hippos and our lions, um, but they're behind behind glass or behind mesh and that's to, to keep the animals safe and to keep us safe. But ambassador animals for the most part are able to be without a boundary. So if you've ever had a bird fly to your hand, you've ever touched a snake when you were in the gift shop, you've ever um, been at a school program and had a cheetah come out on stage and, and sit right up on that table without a barrier, that is how we classify an ambassador animal. And what is it that kind of, you've had so much experience with ambassador animals, what is it that pulls you to ambassador animals? Is it the fact that you can work with them free contact and you can really build a close relationship? Is it also like the education aspect to it? I imagine it's very rewarding as well. Yeah, so I think it's I think it's literally both of those. So thanks for answering your own question. <laughs> no problem. Um, there is something pretty amazing about being able to be free contact with my animals. It obviously requires um, that I'm kind of like on my A-game all the time, right? Because just because I can be free contact with these animals doesn't mean that there are never dangers, right? Sure. Doesn't mean that I don't have to be careful or that they're just like pets. Um, so I want to be really clear about that. Um, the tamanduas that we'll talk about a little bit later are some of the strongest animals for their body size of anything I've ever encountered, and they have claws that are as long as our pointer fingers. So we still have to be really careful, but I can also still carry them around um, because of our relationship and whatnot. And then, yes, the other part would be education. There is something pretty amazing being the person that facilitates the moment that someone gets to experience something with an animal they never dreamt they could before. And obviously you guys get to do that as well all the time, especially with your hippos and things. Um, I just do it in a slightly different way, being free contact. So flying our Lady Ross's Taraco Zulu um, through the bamboo forest and having her swoop over people's heads is just a really neat experience and watching people's faces light up and you know say, this is my new favorite animal. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they go home and talk about that for years. Yes. Like, for sure. <laughs> it's a moment it's they won't so forget. It's so rewarding. And I feel like for you guys too, it's got to be really rewarding because a lot of the animals that you work with, people may have never seen one before, or they may never even heard of. Like, I'm sure most of the visitors we have that see the Taraco doesn't know what one is, and then you see it and you're like, man, these are inspiring, beautiful birds. It's got to be really rewarding. Yeah, yeah, our previous head keeper used to refer to Zulu as everyone's favorite animal that they didn't know existed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. And it's just different when you get to see them doing what they do best, flying or like a natural behavior and up close and personal versus seeing them out in like a bird aviary. You may not connect with that one bird or that right. even notice it, you know, but if they're flying over and you don't expect an animal to be free in the zoo, you know, right. like it, it definitely like makes a lasting memory, I feel like. So that's really cool you get to do that. Yeah. Definitely. Do you have any, I'm sure the tomatoes are a huge favorite for you. Do you have any other 
animals that are specifically rewarding that you work with? Yeah, so I just mentioned Zulu, Lady Rasta's Taraco. She'd be way high on my list. Um, I hand raised her from a little, little chick. And then Lucille the Bearcat, or Binturong, to give you the technical name. Um, I bottle raised her from five weeks old, so she's really special mm -hmm. to me as well. She's the um, ambassador for the University of Cincinnati. And um, Frankie, our bad-eared fox, is one who's really special to me. She is probably one of the most intelligent animals that I've ever worked with. So she's really rewarding um, because training her is just really a challenge, but in the best way. So she picks up on things so fast that I'm constantly having to come up with new behaviors for her. Um, at the time of this recording, I believe she's at like 32 different wow. trained behaviors. That's and, impressive. And those are specific like on cue behaviors, right? Those aren't just that she knows how to shift or um, run outside when she's told or those kinds of things. These are like, you know, handshake and listen and dig and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. those would be some of my very favorites. I'm sure I'm forgetting someone. That's awesome. <laughs> I remember when Lucille was, was young and you guys were kind of trying to habituate her to interacting with the public. So like some of the keeper staff got to go in from different departments mm -hmm. and meet her and that was really rewarding. Just to get to see her for one day was awesome. <laughs> yeah, she was so, well, I'm sure she still is so cute, but she was <laughs> tiny when we got to interact with her. Yes. And she was so fun. Yes, she's great. Yeah. So, on average, how many animals are you working with in a day? Because you guys have a large collection, mm -hmm. but you have different spaces where they live. So, are you going back and forth or explain to the listeners kind of what your day looks like? Yeah. So, we've got about 140 animals, I believe, at the time of this recording um, in interpretive. And we have four separate buildings. Then we also have our rainforest that houses our sloth. So, it's not really a whole other, you know, building worth of animals. Um, and every morning our team meets and we set up who's doing what routine for the day. So every day I'm working in a different building with a different set of animals. Um, I want to say we've got like 22 runs or so in the department, some, somewhere around there. Someone on my team's going to count that now that I said that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we sign up for a couple and whatever animals are on that run is kind of the ones that you're working with. So the Animal Ambassador Center in the Children's Zoo is the building that I am the primary keeper on. So I'm responsible for like the weekly tasks, monthly tasks, keeping it running, um, just really having eyes on the building, but I only have to work in there one to two times a week. So the other days of the week I might be up at our education center, which is connected to our rainforest. Um, so I could work from any work with anything from our sloth to our anteaters to reptiles, amphibians, birds, I mean and then also we all train animals in all the d different buildings. So um, today I've already been to almost every single place that I could possibly oh. go in interpretive um, just to make sure I get all my training sessions in. That sounds time consuming. Yeah. <laughs> it is. That would be hard. I'm yes. sure you're getting your steps into yes. walking from building to building yes. across the park. <laughs> But, I mean, you've mentioned some of your favorites, and people have grown to love some of these animals you've mentioned. Enrico is a part of your department. Yes. He's very well loved. But a lot of times, these animals are actually behind the scenes, and people have a hard time seeing them. Mm -hmm. Is there um, anything you could tell guests, like, the best way to get the most out of their experience at, at the zoo, like, to see some of these animals? Do you guys have specific times, or is it all happenstance? It's mostly happenstance, sadly, but we are moving towards um, some more structured ideas for next summer, okay. whether that be just checking a sandwich board that's sitting outside the AAC that says, 
we'll be taking Zulu to the bamboo forest at 1 p.m. Mm-hmm. Or um, there's a space called the Mahali, which is kind of by like the treetops building, by where the flamingos used to be, and like lion is kind of the best way for me to describe it. And we sometimes take animals there. Um, it is my dream one day to have a tamandua climb a tree somewhere in the park. So once we designate what the best tree will be, um, I'm Fine. sure it'll have some sort of signage or something. And um, so yeah, we're we're trying to get something a little bit more structured so people can see these animals that they fall in love with on social media, and then they drive from all over, fly from all over the sea, and then they can't, so. It is tough, um, though. It, it is very cool when you aren't expecting it. It makes it that much more magical. But, yeah. like, I totally get that people want to be able to see them, too. So there's, like, a little give and take with that where, no, you can't always see them, and you may or may not see them, but sometimes they're, like, there are big requests, like, for the sloths and Rico, and they have certain mm-hmm. areas that you can see them, but. Yeah. yeah, one little hint, or one little tip, I should say, is if you're wanting to see any of the ambassador animals that are on exhibit, like Rico or Isla Tamandua, Lucille Bearcat, try to try to come near the end of the day when we're feeding them out dinner, because they're oh. usually waiting for their dinner, and um, nine times out of ten, they will come down and get their food. Um, and Rico is especially cute to watch eating, because he holds his <laughs> with his little front, front hands, so um, that would be my insider tip. I'm sure everyone will love to hear that. Yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. You did mention the tamandua, though. I do want to hear all about our tamanduas that we have here at the zoo. Would you start, though, by just describing what exactly a tamandua is, where they're found, what they eat? Yeah. Um, so a tamandua is a lesser anteater, not because they're any less awesome, but because they are lesser in size than a giant anteater. And I have said that 9,000 times <laughs> at this point in my career. Um, but really and truly, they are just as amazing as a giant anteater. So when people think anteater, they typically think giant anteater. They think the big black, gray, and white anteaters that are, you know, five to six feet long, walk on the ground. Um, a lot of people don't know that there are other anteater species, like the silky anteater or like the tamandua. And a tamandua um, is full grown somewhere between five kilograms and like nine kilograms, depending on the exact individual. Sorry, it's in kilograms. That's what we weigh everything in. <laughs> and um, they're tree climbing animals, so they are arboreal. So they have really amazing adaptations that allow them to move around in the trees really effectively and safely. Um, so they have those long claws that I mentioned a little while back that are about as long as my pointer finger on their front feet. And then their back feet also have some pretty long hooked claws as well that help them hold on to the tree. And then they have a prehensile tail. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the term prehensile, that just means that it is essentially like a limb. So they can use that tail to grab onto things. Um, It's very muscular. um, So it makes life in the trees a lot easier. And then as far as what they eat, I'm hoping that most of you listeners can guess what an anteater eats. But just in case, (laughs) I'll tell you, they eat ants primarily, but they also really like termites and any fruits that they might come upon. And then if they can safely ever get honey, they've been known to snack on some honey. So very often they might find some rotted, you know, slightly rotted bananas or overripe oranges or things on the ground and they would they would go for those. Um, however, tamandos also really like savory foods. So Isla's favorite food is chicken flavored baby food. And wow. a lot of tamandos are known to go nuts for ketchup, um, vinegar. Yeah, they like a lot of savory foods. Interesting. Do we know what would be something like that in the wild that they would have like get a taste for that? Or so, 
I don't know how true this is, and I'm prefacing, prefacing with that. <laughs> um, but it is said that when um, ants, it's said that ants give off a chemical that smells similar to stinky feet, which smells similar to cheese. <laughs> So what? I don't, know how, I don't know how accurate any of that is, but that is what I sometimes say on programs because the tamanduas are insanely into our feet when we go on walks. Huh. Um, and stinky feet sometimes does smell like stinky Maybe. cheese. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. Never would have made that connection. I never. <laughs> Did you mention where they're from? Where they can be oh, found? Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't. No, it's okay. Central and South America, and really all over both. I mean, their range is massive. Are they endangered? They are not currently endangered. Great. However, um, a population census has, hasn't been done in a really long time okay. on tamanduas. They're also very, very elusive. They're hard to see. They're nocturnal. Um, I went to Costa Rica twice, and I saw one tamandua for approximately two and a half seconds crossing a street. Um, since they're nocturnal and they're solitary and they live in the trees, they can be really hard mm. um, to find. Um, I was talking to a researcher a couple years ago who went down somewhere in um, South America to study tamanduas, and I believe in her whole three years there, she only saw like three or four individuals wow. total. man. Yeah. Researchers are so dedicated. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine like all that time and not having that reward of seeing the animals right. Yeah. often? Right. Oh my gosh. So tell us about the tamanduas we have here. Yeah, so here at the zoo we have Isla, and she is our female. Um, Isla, I believe at the time of this recording, is like seven years old um, with 140 animals. Sometimes I don't always remember my ages. Oh, we don't either. We're right there with <laughs> you. We only right have there. like 40 animals. Like seven. Um, and then we have Salvador, who I know is the same age as Isla. So whatever she is, he is as well. <laughs> um, Salvador is her boyfriend, and they have had, Isla has had five pregnancies, so they've made five babies. Um, at this point, and before Salvador, Isla actually had another boyfriend here at the zoo named Tovar. Um, for any of our listeners who might remember Tovar way back, and he was way bigger, way beefier. He had way darker coloring than Salvador does. Um, he was a really neat guy, but the two couldn't figure out how to make babies, so he, <laughs> he went on to another facility to, to get a new girlfriend, and Salvador came in, and the two hit it off instantly. Um, and have made lots of babies since then. Huh, that's amazing mm -hmm. that they just hit it off better. Oh my gosh. It makes sense. But... First intro. She got pregnant at the first intro. Wow. No way. Yes, she did. And yeah. she's currently pregnant right now. Yes, yeah, she is currently pregnant. We are on day like six of birth watch right now. So you mentioned briefly we've heard the birth watch has started, but that we may not have a baby until the end of January. So explain that. Like, do we not know their gestation? Is it like... What is that? Yeah, about? so Tamandua's gestation is typically 130 to 190 days, wow. which is a massive window, right? Yeah. Imagine telling a pregnant woman that you could go anytime in these two months. We have no idea when to expect it. That would it. be awful. Yeah, and um, that's because Tamandua's have given birth at, at all points in that 130 to 190. Um, there's a zoo in Indiana that just had a baby born at day 186. Um, Isla's given birth at day 161, day 169. Um, she also gave birth at day, day 127, but unfortunately that pup didn't make it probably because it was a little too young. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, the birth window is just massive. And so it's huh. a waiting game for a full two months. I wonder what that's Jeez, about okay. because it's not like it's super long. So two months is a big difference in... Wow. Okay, and they're small animals. But. Do you have? A, do you guys have a pool going on? I'm guessing when yes, the baby's going to be born. Yes, we do. We have a baby pool going on. So, um, 
What's your guess? My guess is New Year's Day at 7.30 p.m. Ooh, that'll yeah. be fun. New, New Year's, Year's Day. I would say that'd be a fun yeah. time for a baby. <laughs> I think it'd be fun. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So it's December 5th right now, but... In the next two months, there should hopefully be a new tomato baby here. And how long will that baby nurse and stay with mom and all of that? Yeah, so if it's um if it's a female, baby can stay with mom for about a year. If it's a male, we'll probably start separating around six months and have that finished by seven months. Because okay. we don't want any um, mom and son babies popping out. Mm -hmm. um, and they usually nurse... They'll nurse up to like five months. However, they start weaning at like three months. So wow. um, if you guys are visiting the zoo and you see them over in the Animal Ambassador Center, you might be able to see baby start trying some of mom's food at three months old. Um, however, they'll still get the majority of, you know, the nutrients from mom's milk at that point. And then weaning goes pretty fast um, for Tamandua. And eventually nursing just becomes a, a comfort thing where we don't even think mom's probably producing anything. She, you know, baby's just suckling because they're very bonded. Thinking of what a tomato looks like with this really long snout, like <laughs> I can't, I can't even picture what nursing looks like, but it must be interesting. Hopefully you guys will catch it on video and you can share it. Um, but yeah, like how does the, ba the babies cling to their mothers, mm -hmm. right? So they hold on like mm -hmm. a, a tomato would hang onto a tree. And then are they like upside down on the mom's stomach? How does that work? So it's really precious when they nurse. Um, a lot of times mom either lays over them, so they'll be laying on their back and mom will lay over Aww. them. Um, or mom might be laying kind of on her back and literally cradling baby a okay. little bit like a human. So, so she's not like hanging in a tree and the baby's hanging onto her. They're like somewhere not as often. They're, solid. Yeah, okay. they're more usually like you'll most of the time they go back to their nest. We don't know so much um, about in the wild because they're so elusive. Mm -hmm. So we can say for certain that um, in, you know, in zoos and things that they, they nurse that way in their nest. So I have a lot of pictures and videos and things of, of their first baby, um, Eastland, Salvador's first baby, Manny, nursing. Um, and to, to answer your question, Jenna, a little bit ago about how in the world do they nurse with that long tongue, they actually extend the tongue fully out and it flops to the side. Oh, <laughs> and no then way. they'll latch up oh, with a nipple. Yeah. So it's really, really cute to see the tongue just hanging out oh, to the side. It makes it even cuter. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. So if you've ever seen a, one of our videos of the Tamandua's yawning or something, you can get a feel for just how long that tongue is and how silly it would look flopping out to the side. How yeah. long is their tongue? 12 to 16 inches. Wow. Wow. In that's yeah. so long. That's we compare incredible. that to a giraffe. Yeah, I'll like, say about the size of the giraffe. For the size tongue. of the giraffe versus yeah. the size of <laughs> right. uh, Tamandua to have right. a similarly yeah. length tongue. That's crazy. And for Isla and Salvador, obviously in the wild they're going to be eating mostly ants, but I'm sure we don't have enough ants to keep them fed here. What are they going to be eating on a day to day basis? That's a great question. So um, in zoos, we formulate a lot of our diets. Um, you know, based on what we can get our hands on. So like you said, we might not be able to have a lot of ants around here, but we can make pellets like dog food um, that contain all of the nutrients that that animal group might need. So tamanduas are what we call insectivores because they eat primarily insects. So there's a pellet that is formulated for insect eating animals. So it has a lot of the nutrients that they would find in ants and termites and things. Um, so we take that insectivore and we soak it overnight and then we put it in a blender and we add some water. Sometimes for Isla we add some vinegar. 
Um, sometimes we add some oil to make sure that they, their skin doesn't get itchy um, mm. because they're used to really humid places oh, and it gets yeah. very dry here. And um, we might add some fruit like orange, banana, things like that. And then we make it into a slurry. It should be like runny pudding. That's the perfect consistency <laughs> of a tomato a slurry. And then um, we like to put it in puzzle feeders and things. We try not to feed them in just a normal bowl um, to you know, simulate what it would be like for their tongues to be going in anthills and things. So we use a lot of just like dog and cat puzzle feeders. Um, so their tongue has to kind of go every which way to clean out the food. Do you need to do the slurry like with the little pellets? They wouldn't want the one wouldn't want it that way, or is it difficult for them to eat? Or yeah, I think I think there might be some people who have had success with not soaking it, but for the most part, um, everybody makes a slurry for their tamanduas. They also don't have teeth, so they can't chew the pellets, so it's much easier for them to just lap it up. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. They also can't really open their mouth any further than might you know, the width of my pinky. So um, even eating something like a cricket can be difficult. So if we add crickets to their diet, um, we typically put them in the slurry and we blend those up. Um, they do lap up mealworms and waxworms pretty well though. Okay. Have you ever seen one of them, they go out for walks, which you can talk about a little bit. Yeah. Um, but have you ever seen them go for ants like or insects oh, yeah. out on the walk? Really? Oh yeah. That is my favorite thing when it happens and it really doesn't happen very often at all, so it's like a treat for me too. Yeah, for sure. And it does happen. Um, Isla loves to look for rotted logs or fencing, sorry, maintenance, and she will start tearing it apart um, if she can sense that there's termites or ants in it. Um, so sometimes they'll just like rip into a colony, or occasionally she'll just find one in the ground that. I don't even see a single ant walking around and she just makes a beeline for it and rips open the ground and then the ants go scurrying everywhere. And it's really neat to be able to watch her do exactly as she would be doing in the wild yeah. and yeah. finding those ants. And it's also really cool to watch all of her adaptations at work. Even just the way her fur is made and how thick it is and how bristly it is, the ants have a really, really hard time getting to her skin, so then she doesn't get bit up by the angry, you know, oh, soldier ants. That makes sense. Um, who are trying to defend the, the ant hill, and she also is able to close her eyes super, super tight to make sure they don't get into her eyes either. So that's pretty, pretty cool to watch. Um, our previous male, Tovar, used to find ants a lot more than Salvador or Isla, but um, it is quite a treat when one of the two of them finds something on a walk. I know they have a keen sense of smell. Is their sense of smell that strong that they can smell ants well, it as must, they're walking? It must be, especially if they smell stinky feet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, it's at night, and I don't... Are ants out at night? I don't know. That's I mean, really they would have to question. find them underground, right? So they'd be using only... An their, under or, tree bark. Okay. They okay. find a lot. So makes... Isla tries to climb trees around the zoo. Sorry, horticulture. I really <laughs> don't let her rip into trees, though, because... I'm trying to make sure that we keep our trees alive. Yeah, right. The dirt I don't care so much about or the rotten fencing, but um, yeah, she does. She can find them quick on a tree if That's I let her fun. climb a little bit. Do you know how their hearing is? Could that be part of it too? So their hearing is decent. If you look at um, a tamandua, you'll notice their ears are pretty big and goofy, sticking off the sides of their head. So yeah, their ears are their ears are pretty good too, um, but nothing compared to that sense of smell. Okay. Hmm. That's amazing. I'm impressed by tamanduas. And then they just use those big claws, right, to kind of open up the tree or, in our case, rotted fencing. Yes. Yeah. Yes, they use those claws 
they are, I mean, those claws are so strong they can rip open a termite mound. So if, if you know, a termite mound is like a hunk of cement mm -hmm. and they can rip that right open. So they are just so strong. Um, and the claws are so long that they have to walk on the sides of their feet to make sure that they don't puncture their own paw pads when they're walking and to keep them nice and sharp. So that if they walked on them, they would wear them down being as long as they are. Um, and they also have super, super padded front hands. Um, and that is to help them in case they do ever make a fist and go to puncture themselves. They've got a lot of protection there. And then also just as they're ripping into things, it provides a lot of protection. Mm -hmm. Imagine if you were trying to rip through cement, you'd probably scuff up your palms real good. Mm -hmm. um, so they've got just tons of padding um, on their hands. Huh. So do they come to the ground often? Like we know a sloth hardly ever leaves a tree, but how often are tomandoas coming down to the ground? So tomandoas come to the ground an okay amount, I would say, because they, they'll come down to the ground and they often walk a certain route, like they memorize their routes and so they'll walk those same routes um, because, again, it's said, I don't know how well this has been studied, that a tamandua can kind of remember where all their different anthills are because they never want to eat an anthill to totally decimate that anthill's population or they're decimating their own food source that they just found. So it's said that they'll eat just enough that the anthill can recover itself. And the what I heard is that um, they won't visit that anthill again until they can't smell themselves on it anymore. So wow. tamanduas, as we haven't touched on yet, are incredibly, incredibly smelly. Um, like a skunk times a bajillion. <laughs> if you ever walk by the building they live in, you'll catch a whiff. You can yes. smell it. Like yeah. here in the zoo, it's yes. one like elephants have a pungent smell that sticks with you, but it's not necessarily as hard on the nose. <laughs> I would say same with hippos, same with giraffe. Like our buildings, we work those areas when we come home and we smell like it. But I don't think you walk by hippos and smell a smell often, unless they just. I like, don't. Yeah. yeah so, I but don't. you can walk by the ambassador center, or or you know we have different buildings, Africa's area, but mm -hmm. and then plus a binturong and a porcupine, you could definitely catch yeah, a smell so, <laughs> from some of the smallest animals. So it's you know they're able to use that um, strong smell for or strong scent for multiple things, and one of that is. One of those things is making sure that they have enough food left over for later. So as soon as they can't smell themselves on that anthill again, then they will revisit that anthill and then they can eat from it again. That's so, fascinating. I wonder yeah. how they know and how they can tell. And yeah. Animals are incredible. Are they solitary then? Or they are. Okay. Yeah, they're solitary. Um, and before, to finish answering your question about coming to the ground, before we would have said, you know, they come down to go to the bathroom. Um like sloths do, you know, shimmy down the tree and, and poop and go back up. However, I'm going to um, question that because we have a tamandua who likes to poop from the ceiling and it will just splat to the ground. He does oh not care. So that would tell me that in the wild there's probably tamanduas that you just need to watch your head if you're ever walking through the rainforest. Um, but a lot of times tamanduas do actually come down and find a body of water and they will go to the bathroom in the body of water. Okay. Um, it's believed that the function of that is probably so that it can hide the scent, right? You know, from mm. predators or whatever. Um, so our tamanduas actually all have, or both have, we call them their toilets. So they have tubs of water that they will go to the bathroom in pretty religiously, huh. which makes cleaning up a lot easier. Yeah, definitely. You don't have to go searching for it. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
I did not know that at all. What predators might they face in the wild? Something like a harpy eagle or an ocelot. Okay. Um, a harpy eagle can pluck a tamandua out of a tree um, and an ocelot. But other than that, they don't really have a whole lot of predators. Humans, I would say, you know, are probably the, mm -hmm. the biggest threat. So there's a lot of um, myths around tamanduas um, that make people really afraid of them. Oh, I haven't heard any of Yeah, that. so people, a lot of people believe that tamanduas are evil by nature. They believe that they will, you know, kill people's dogs, people's pets. Um, it's also said that, you know, a tamandua might come in your house during the night and eat your brains out, your ears, and things what? like that. So it's really important. Right now, a lot of education is being done in their natural um, habitats with the people that actually live with tamanduas. Um, explaining that, you know, all of these are actually myths. Tamanduas are great. They serve a really important role in the ecosystem, um, you know, of literally just keeping ant populations yeah. at bay with how many ants and things there are. Um, I wonder then, how those got started because sure. they don't have teeth. Yeah. I mean, obviously they have those claws, but they would have no reason to go into someone's house or, you know, like, I wonder how those stories I think get a lot of it stemmed from how elus elusive they are. So, People, uh, the unknown. Yeah, people mm -hmm. that live near tamanduas still may have never seen a tamandua because they're so elusive and you can smell them and know they were there but uh, never have seen one. And you probably hear stories and from... And you hear stories yeah. and they're strong <laughs> and if you've ever watched one rip open a fence, I think all those things together probably just has created a narrative around them. Mm -hmm. So Wow. You did mention they're solitary. What does that process look like for you guys when you introduce like Salvador and Isla to breed? Like, is that yeah. a very meticulous process? Do they take to each other really easy? What's that like for you guys? Yeah, so it is definitely a super metic meticulous process. So I track um, Isla's estrus cycle pretty religiously. So I can tell based on several um, behaviors that she might exhibit and also physiological changes in her body. So a really neat one is um, Isla's eyes will secrete a milk-like substance. Actually, it looks more like Elmer's glue than milk. Wow. And it looks like she's crying Elmer's glue. And she only does this when she's feeling particularly receptive to a male. Well, since I work with both the tamanduas on a daily basis, I sometimes, you know, if I want to test where she is in her cycle, I can go hang out with Salvador first, then go see Isla. And if her eyes milk, that's one of the indicators that I can use. However, they also might milk at other times of the month, so I don't use that as the sole indicator. Um, tamanduas also bleed regularly, like, oh. um, like you know, humans do. It's not, it's not actually considered menstruation. Um, that's a whole scientific, there's a whole scientific thing behind that, but we do track her bleeding and then you count out X amount of days past bleeding to determine when she's probably the most receptive. Then if the behaviors line up on top of that, we'll put them together. Mm -hmm. And Isla is very, very communicative with us if she's not having it if maybe I put them together a day too early um, she's really clear about it so she'll growl at him and um, try to get away from him and then we keep those intros super short right they're just informational um, and then we'll try again the next day and then every day she gets more and more receptive just because we're getting further you know into that cycle and um, eventually it just turns into a big wrestling match and they play and play and play and play occasionally stop you know try to make a baby and play and play and play and they will play all day they roll around and wrestle and pounce on each other and it's 
pretty adorable to watch. Um, and then as she starts coming out of that, you know, period in her cycle, um, she starts growling again. She doesn't want anything to do with him. She'll hang on the door and be like, can you please take me home? <laughs> um, so yeah, it's a pretty meticulous process. I've not heard of Tamandua growl, but I imagine it's adorable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. so Tamanduas don't really make many noises at all, really. Um, babies do this very strange, shrieky scream for their mom. It's really cute. It sounds kind of like a bird. I don't know, like Kevin from Up or something would make. Like, it's a <laughs> screech. And then they will growl. And they also do this kind of like hollow whistle through their nose, which it looks like a flute, so it makes sense. <laughs> um, a lot of us tomato keepers refer to it as like nose talking. It's just what we've you know coined the term. So they'll do that sometimes, primarily when they really can smell each other. They'll start doing this like nose whistle, but hmm. I don't hear it most of the time other huh. than that. A nose whistle. I've never heard of that. I've never even heard of that before. I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> Is it a happy sound? Like they want to get to each other or like you're too close, go away? The whistling is usually, like, I'm very, very curious. Just okay. imagine, like, the most curious anticipatory sound. Okay. The growling is definitely yeah. get Obvious. away from me. <laughs> yeah, but Salvador is um, the picture of a gentleman. I always say that we should, like use him to teach like consent classes and things because <laughs> he literally will um he'll just follow her around very slowly he's very like kind and patient with her literally he will just like touch her on the back and if she turns and growls it's like he just takes a couple steps back and it's like okay okay we'll we'll try again in a bit or maybe tomorrow or maybe never <laughs> whatever works for you um, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask, like, is it hard to separate them when she's ready to be done? But it sounds like he probably... He is incredible. Um, with Tovar, our previous male, he would latch on to Isla, and it, it was very difficult to get them mm. apart. So it was really opportunistic, right? It would be she finally gets away from him, and then we would run in and, and grab her. And since we can be hands-on with them, even in that moment, we can safely go in and get them and put them in a crate and take them home. We try to introduce them in a neutral space so that it's not he's coming into her house mm. and stressing her out or she's going to a place that only smells like him. So we try to do it in a neutral space. But yes, as soon as they're done and they've hung out for several hours, they'll just be wandering around. They sometimes will eat dinner together and then we just go in and get her <laughs> and put her home and they both go to bed. So <laughs> Nice little date. Yes, they, they make it pretty easy, honestly, um, for us. Uh, so you said an adult is between, like, 5 and 10 kilograms, which is close to, like, what, 10, 10 to 20 10 pounds. To 20 yeah, pounds. Yeah. yeah. So how big is a pup? Is well, is that what a baby's called? Mm -hmm. A pup? Um, how much does a pup weigh when they're born, usually? Like 300 grams. Wow. So 500 grams-ish is a pound, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So less than a pound. Yeah. And how long is their little tail? Um, it's pretty long. It's, like, the... As long as their body, let's see. Okay. I don't know. What do you think that is? Like eight inches? Yeah, probably somewhere around wow, there. Wow, that's bigger than I expected. It's long, and since they're so tiny, it's like a noodle, and it'll wrap around your finger. Cause oh, it's all gosh. muscular. Um, their claws also harden pretty much right away when they're born. Mm -hmm. So if you ever are so fortunate to be able to like weigh a baby tamandua or something, um, those claws that I talked about the adults having, the babies have, and they're the same size proportionally to that baby, so they're huge. Um, 
but they're tiny, brand new, never scratched anything cloths. So they are like little sewing needle exacto oh blades. Yes, oh they can gosh. just latch on, but it, it helps them hold on to mom and, and ride around the rainforest without falling off and falling way, way, you know, out of the trees to yeah. the ground. So, yeah. <sighs> I know they latch on to their moms. Do they latch on to her back or to her belly? So they latch on, like, to the base of her tail, mostly. Okay. And they'll, um, they have their arms up and over, like, her back legs. Oh, okay. um, for the most part, they might also climb up higher on her back, but they can really attach securely at the base of the tail because they can, how they can wrap their limbs around her legs. Um, so Isla usually ends up with some scratches on her inner thighs from, from the claws <laughs> holding on. I had no idea they were yeah. that sharp. Like Yes. Yeah, and they'll also ride on mom till till they literally can't anymore. <laughs> so five, six months, I mean, they'll still be, they'll be this almost the same size as mom and still trying to catch a ride. Oh, so, is like, get off me. Yeah, she will. She'll, she eventually just starts smacking them. Like, get off of me. You're too big for this. So I know you guys do a lot of training with all your different animals, but what training do you do with Isla and Salvador? And how did you figure out that she was pregnant? Yeah, um, so the primary training that we've done with Isla would be for just like walking around the park and being able to go on programs. So we do a lot of, you know, zoo, zoo troop programs and a lot of programs in our education center. So Isla is really good at going and meeting people and just, she'll just wander around the room and um, pre-COVID people could like feed her bugs and things like that. So we just did a lot of like desensitizing her, so taking her to new spaces, seeing how she reacted to different stimuli, making sure that we could always set up an environment in a way where she felt safe, she felt like she had an escape, she understood her crate was a positive place that she could always retreat to, which on walks she does. If she has to pee, she will go back into her crate <sighs> for privacy, and then she will pee and then go back on the walk. Huh. Um, it's, it's pretty cute. Um, That's Usually animals don't want to pee in their crate, but she wants the privacy. She also pees in her bed. Huh. Yeah, okay. that's interesting. So yeah. You have to change your blankets so every it's day. it's a safe place, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and it's also cute that she needs the privacy yeah. to go pee. Um, so yeah, we do that training, and then walking them, um, that required a lot of training as well as far as training them to voluntarily accept having a harness put on them. We do harness our tamanduas when we're out on walks for guest safety and tamandua safety. Um, and because they're amazing climbers. So yeah. I need to make sure that one doesn't scramble up the wrong tree or into another exhibit or something like that. Um, but we don't, we try not to even like use the leash that's attached to the harness. And what I mean by that is we don't do a lot of, you know, tugging on our mm -hmm. animals. Um, so she is truly trained to follow my feet or another trainer's feet. Um, as we're walking along and if she ever starts to deviate I just take one of her treat cups or treat tubes and I tap on the ground and that's her recall so she knows to then turn and come back to me um, so we've done that training and then some other really amazing training we've done with Isla is her ultrasound training so you may have seen some really cute pictures or videos on the zoo social media over the years of Isla getting ultrasounds um, a lot of animals in zoos are trained to, you know, stand up on their hind legs and put their front legs on, you know, uh, a stand or something so we can access, access the belly. But Isla is so trusting and has such a relationship with her, her care staff that we actually just hold her and she lays on her back and eats out of a treat tube, eats some chicken flavor baby <laughs> oh food. Gosh. And um, the one thing that's really important to Isla, though, is someone has to hold her back feet. 
So we like to say it's like stirrups at the gynecologist. <laughs> she always has to have... She needs that foot support. She does. If she doesn't have it, her back feet will just slowly reach out into the atmosphere for something until someone puts a pointer finger up. She'll put her little claws over, and then she is so content eating her baby food. So at this point, I want to say probably at least 20 different people have held Isla for ultrasounds, wow. um, which is an amazing testament to her training, right? She doesn't have relationships with all 20 of those people, but she had has such a strong um, history of training with that ultrasound behavior that we can kind of swap people in and out at this point. Um, Fun. So that's how we found out she was pregnant. Yeah, so <laughs> we got awesome. to see images of a baby tamandua, yeah. which is just adorable. And that... I mean, based on you following her cycle and seeing the breeding and everything, that's how you came to this potential due date of the next two months. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm really precise. <laughs> two months. <laughs> it's going to be January 1st, remember? Yes, oh, January, January 1st. <laughs> I hope so. A little less than a month ago. Based on her first and second baby, that's somewhere in the middle of them. Okay. That's why, that's why I chose that date. Okay. It's still pretty random. <gasps> That's awesome. They sound like amazing animals. Do you have anything else you want to tell us about them or your job in general or any more uh, hints or tips for our listeners? Um, anything else? Um, well, one cool thing I'll add about the ultrasounds is um, we've been ultrasounding Isla for so long and I've been a part of so many that I actually was able to learn how to conduct the ultrasounds myself. Um, so now... I can kind of switch out um, with the vets or whoever is doing, you know, we have members from, from crew who will do the ultrasounds and I can kind of switch out with them. So sometimes they'll hold Isla and I'll do the ultrasound. Aww. Which is so funny because they're probably dying to do that yes. and you're like, I want to do the ultrasound and you yeah. both have like the coolest jobs, but you want to do each other's. <laughs> yeah, so that's been really neat and um, we've gone through a series of different ultrasound machines, so the first machine that we used for several several years, I mean, I was blown away by that one. It's the one that I learned on, um, but it is nothing compared to the ones we're using now. We were able to hear the heartbeat last week um, for the first time ever. Oh, that's awesome. And we can see eye sockets and the liver and, you know, obviously you can see ribs and spine usually, but um, we're able to see, you know, the front feet kicking and, and things like that, the tail um, and all the little bones in the tail. Okay, so, so is the tail amazing. curled up, or is it straight out and, like, dangling? How it, does... like, is wrapped around the body, and then it, we've seen it, like, wrapped around the body, but then also coming to, like, a candy cane tip. So okay. um, there's a really cute picture. The bones in the tail make it look like a striped candy cane. Oh. Yeah, it's a really oh cute image. We'll we'll need to share that on social media. I know. I'm waiting for PR to put that one out, because they have it. <laughs> we'll see if they'll put it out after this oh. podcast. <laughs> That sounds awesome. so fun. Yeah, we've gotten to experience some different ultrasounds with hippos. And the new one, if you're talking about the white one, the white Dr. Barnes. Yes, yes. That white one is amazing. That's the one I'm talking about. <laughs> Everyone's like, we don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> We're geeking out over this machine. Uh, all right, you ready for some trivia? I guess. As hard as I'm going to yeah, be. I've got some trivia for you guys. Okay. If you're for it. All right. Today, it's obviously we're here to talk about tomandos. Mm -hmm. It's all about tomandua trivia. Oh. I it's going to be really wait. embarrassing when I'm, I'm got, wrong. I'm It'll got, be really abstract. What did you come up just with? Just three now? questions today. Okay. So it's a pretty short set. Okay. Question number one, I'm going to make Jenna start with the answer oh. because <laughs> Colleen actually mentioned the answer oh. in our discussion. How was I listening? Okay. <laughs> how well was Jenna paying attention? We're about to find out. How many teeth 
does a Tamandua have? Oh, I know this. They have zero. Zero teeth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I could have done that one. <laughs> I would have gotten that right. Yeah, as Colleen mentioned, you know, they just use those really long tongues to kind of slurp up ants, termites, whatever they're able to find, or what is it? Chicken-flavored chicken baby, chicken baby food, whatever, <laughs> whatever they can find. So. And then their stomach helps grind the food. They've got a really interesting digestive tract oh. that helps grind up the food. Hmm. That makes sense because exoskeletons on insects are not easily yeah. digestible. Tough, yeah. And if they're not even chewing it. so Giant ant eaters eat rocks in order <sighs> to actually be a physical grinder in their digestive tract. That sounds horrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, question number two. How many ants, approximately, does a tamandua eat in a day? Do you want to try first? This was a, sure. a study done by the Smithsonian Zoo. In a day? In a day. Hopefully it's the same number that I tell people. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a complete guess. 10,000. 10,000? Girl. Do you have a guess? I usually say 9,000. Yay! Not too far off. Hey, you guys are both right That's at so it. So yeah. many ants. Smithsonian came up with 9,000 ants, approximately. Wonderful. Give or I take. would also love to know how that study was done. Same. <laughs> <laughs> how do you facilitate that? Right. Or count each ant individually as right. they eat. <laughs> Maybe they weighed one ant and then they put a bucket of ants and. Anyways, they honestly going. probably didn't do something. <laughs> Just like, weigh them? Based yeah, 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 based average. off weight. But that's still incredible. They're eating 9,000 ants <laughs> yeah. a day. Even, mm. I know ants are small, but tomatoes aren't that big. I mean, right. it's just a, right. like I said, 10, 15 pound animal. Like, yeah. I guess we don't know the volume of 9,000 ants. Yeah, now I'm true. super curious. Right. <laughs> we should ask Insect House. Right. And there are so many different types of ants. Some are t- teeny right. tiny. Right. They huh. probably eat more of those. Unless of the big fat ones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially if they don't have any teeth. They're just... Smaller ones probably go down easier, I'd imagine. But... <laughs> I'm right. imagining little live ants in their digestive system. That's weird to think about. I didn't yeah. think about it that way. <laughs> yeah. Because they just swallow them right down. Yeah. They Never can't die them. right away, right? I don't think so. <laughs> they probably have some serious That's like, a circle of life right there. Yeah. Things. Hopefully it's quick. Yeah. <laughs> Ants. <laughs> two for two. We're off to a good start. Question number three. What is a Tamandua's last effort in a defense mechanism from a predator? Do you know it? I hope like, I'm sh- right. Should I guess before you? Because sometimes our guests have to guess because he asks questions like, how tall is Big Bird? But these are normal <laughs> we questions. We had no Big Bird questions today. No Big Bird. <laughs> so you might know all the answers. Okay, I'll guess. Um... Well, I would assume their first defense would be their claws. Correct. So would their last defense be, like, curling up into a ball? Curling up in a ball? Colleen, do you have any insight? Well, I was going to guess that their claws were a later defense than their first defense because they will often just try to run away since they're so elusive. Okay. I was going to guess claws. Second, they posture up like a ninja and they stand on their hind legs and start slashing. Oh. Um, so maybe, so it's run away, then look big and scary, and then use their claws? That would be my guess. So the claws and the ninja posturing is definitely, like, a defense mechanism for them. From what I read, I mean, you're the expert here, so I will trust, <laughs> I'll defer to your judgment. From what? what I read, their last defense is going to be to secrete some of that stinky odor. 
from their anal gland. So almost like a skunk. Like, okay. if all else fails, they're just going to try and make themselves stink as much as possible so that the predator, if it does get a hold of them, it might not want to eat them if they smell that bad. Yeah. You know, I've never experienced it here, and that's probably a good thing. Yes. Because you're not a predator, right? <laughs> that means that they're not threatened. Yeah, I've only and seen ours go into ninja pose a handful of times and it's like if someone drops a broom in the area and they they're spooked by it they might stand up like a ninja but it's i mean probably less than 10 times ever have i seen that so stand up like a ninja (laughs) (laughs) it's cute but then you know they're stressed yeah that's tough but i'm glad we got to hear that they do that yeah that's (laughs) stinky odor though they're like ant-eating skunks i guess yeah it's tough do you find it hard to, like, go in public after work when you work with them? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And honestly, I don't love to fly after because it kind of smells like weed. Oh, I mean, gosh. it actually really smells like mm. weed, so I don't love to fly after. Um, my husband won't kiss me when I get home from work until I go shower because oh my it's gosh. so bad. I don't sit on furniture because the smell will just it seep sticks. into my couch. Yeah, it sticks yeah. everywhere. You're dedicated. My clothes have to go straight down to the washer or my house will smell like tomato i have a certain purse i bring to work yeah and everything so but fun fact tomatoes actually smell amazing when they're not secreting that smell what do they smell like perfume really yeah it's a wonderful clean perfumey smell for real i had no idea huh rarely do i get to smell it (laughs) well what Um, causes them to smell bad versus smell good like is it all estrus cycle is it the males only secreting that smell okay like I think that's just always covering their natural, like, fur smell. So if you if you ever met, like, a dog or a cat that was just pretty clean and, and didn't smell dirty or oily, um, they smell kind of good. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's like, tomato, but it's it's actually rather perfumey. Huh. So I'm not really sure what on their body gives that smell. Not everyone has ever even smelled it, even people that take care of tomatoes, because it's very rare that they're well, not secreting. So, yeah. yeah, that's what I was wondering, like, why would they not be? But, okay, mm-hmm. so I don't really know. It's just random. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. I learned a lot today. Yeah, me too. Me <laughs> I'm, too. I'm, I'm glad. With you. I'm <laughs> I hope the listeners have as well. <laughs> I'm sure they have. So, um, you've told us all about what you do in tomatoes, but is there something that I can do. What can I do? What can the listeners do to be better stewards of the earth or just make an impact on tomato habitat or anything like that? One of my favorite, um, really easy things to do in my own house that helps tomatoes, helps hippos, helps everybody because it affects the whole planet is switching from single use, you know, plastic sandwich bags to multiple use plastic or uh, multiple use sandwich bags so I've got some silicone ones at home they're really nice because you can freeze them and um, wash them really well they go in the dishwasher I also really love them selfishly because they're you can use them multiple times so they're they're good on my wallet as well as for the environment yeah definitely I have some of those too and you can get like quart size ones or you know like the gallon size bags and instead of buying ziplocs anymore and yeah the fact that they can go in the dishwasher you have to get the silicone like nicer yes. ones some I've gotten some from like Amazon that didn't end up working out yeah. very well so you might have to come like start with a little bit of an investment at first mm-hmm. but it'll pay off it will pay off and you get to feel good using them because you're it's one less thing you're throwing in the trash yeah, yeah. definitely and I know I've seen some, I have the ones that have, like, the slide on top. Is mm-hmm. that the kind you have? Yep. I don't know if there are any that actually, like, zip up, like, zip like bags. I'm not sure. But, like, another option, that's a really good one to not use, obviously, single-use plastic in general. But yeah. if you're packing your lunch on a daily basis, it's totally worth it to buy these or even, like, the beeswax wraps. But I mm-hmm. think these uh, reusable bags 
do a better job at keeping food fresh, right? Yeah. Like agreed, agreed. That's a good yeah. one. Yeah, Thank you. I agree with that. I love it. Anything you can do to cut down on those single-use plastics, every effort counts. Yeah. Always. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for being here, Colleen, and telling us about all of your animals. And we cannot wait. Wait, let's make a guess. Oh, yes, when, please. When please guess okay. on the air. Okay. Just based off the fact that um, she said the the tail and the ultrasound look like a candy cane, I'm going to go Christmas Baby. Oh, that's Christmas fun. Baby. I love yeah. it. Okay. December 25th. Gosh, now I don't, I don't, I mean, that's a good reason. I don't have any reasons. Um, let's see. I'm going to guess, I'm trying to think if there's like a significant date for me coming up. Um, I'm going to say January 3rd just because, absolutely no reason. I believe that's Isla's birthday. Oh, perfect! No way! <laughs> I hope it is. I, I believe hope the that's baby comes birthday. birthday. Awesome. Okay, perfect. well, Mark says December 25th. You say January 1st. I say January 3rd. The second or the third. Okay. I mean, we'll just say the third for the, for the sake of your guess. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> My son was born on the third, and Fritz oh. was born on the third. Obviously not the same month or year. But we'll see if Baby Tomato is born on the third. Yes. That'd be awesome. Yeah, keep following the zoo's social media page. I'm sure you'll find updates about Isla as she's going through the pregnancy, maybe a couple ultrasound images. Mm-hmm. And definitely once this baby comes, we'll find out. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. There'll be so many pictures and videos of this baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we can't wait. All right. Well, have a great day. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll talk to you later. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you all.